great to see you. And uh, if you're visiting this morning, I really, really trust that you've uh, felt at home. And for those of you that come regularly to our church here, it's wonderful to have you as well. It's my privilege to preach on Resurrection Sunday. And as you know, we are in the book of Mark, and we have landed on the last chapter, the most exciting part of the book on Resurrection Sunday. Isn't that amazing? So it really has been a a privilege to journey with you this year through the Gospel of Mark, and after 52 weeks exactly of preaching through this book, we are here on Resurrection Sunday. So that's absolutely brilliant. And uh, we come to this amazing portion where the uh, women go, go to the tomb and they find that Jesus is not there as they expected, but He has risen. And uh, we're going to divide this into two sections this morning, and you'll see why I've done that in a short while. But uh, let's, if you've got your Bibles, we can read the first eight verses of Mark chapter 16. It simply says this, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us? From the entrance of the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Well, it's, it's quite hard to imagine quite what it must have been like for this woman uh, as they went to the tomb on that, that first day. But um, the first thing I'd just like us to notice out of the text this morning is that there hadn't been time for them to anoint the body in a traditional way. And so they're arriving with spices, expecting to prepare a body for burial. And as we know the, from the trial, which had been rushed through the evening, Sabbath had now intervened, uh, and so... The traditional process that they would have gone through to prepare the body for burial was interrupted, and they weren't able to do so. It's also interesting to me that the, the Bible specifically talks about the woman as the last to wait on Jesus at the cross and the first to come to prepare the body for burial. These women are, are showing incredible bravery, incredible, in, particularly in terms of their culture and was, what, what was expected of women at that time. And speaks to me amazingly about just how Jesus, uh, in his ministry, did everything that he could to lift up the ministry of women in his life. And I think that's definitely something that, in our age, we need to continue to uphold with all of our hearts, that God wants to see everyone liberated into the freedom of the ministry that he has for them. And so it's interesting to me as well that as they're approaching the, the, the tomb, uh, full of bravery on the one hand, they are also full of fear on another. Do you notice that? They're concerned about this 
stone. How are they going to move the stone? They are worried and anxious about how they're going to move the stone. And it's, the text points out, it says the stone was very large. Just in, uh, in other words, emphasizing that it wasn't easy to move. And so they come upon the tomb. And we know that the tombstones were probably the size of a cartwheel. And there was a groove cut into the rock into which this, uh, the stone was rolled. And it sealed the, tom- the tomb. And as they come over the rise, or however it worked out, that they come to the tomb, they see that the stone has been rolled away. And what they were expecting does not happen. They were expecting a burial. They were expecting a tomb. And they come to an open space where the stone has been rolled away. And this amazing declaration by the angel. Um, it's interesting that Matthew's gospel speaks of two angels. Mark's gospel only speaks of one angel, the one that spoke to them. And this angel declares, says, Jesus is not here. He's risen. Uh, he promised that he was going to do that. Now go to Galilee where he's going to appear to you. And he encourages them to go out and to meet Jesus, the risen king. Now, before I get into the body of what I wanted to say this morning, I just want to, I was just reflecting on this this morning and thinking about this, of the ladies coming, this woman coming and expecting one thing and finding another. And I was thinking this, how often isn't it in our lives that the things that we most fear often disappear when we approach them? The things that we most fear often disappear when we approach them. The woman was showing such great courage on one hand, coming to anoint the body, and at the same time, they're full of fear because they're not quite sure how they're going to approach moving the stone. But when they arrive, what they're expecting just dissipates. It's not there. And for me, it's a striking picture of the Christian life. How often aren't we all weighed down by the thought of what possibly could go wrong or what possibly might happen in any given situation? And yet we find often, and I've seen in my life, 95% of the things that I feared never happen. Have you ever noticed that? You can live in your mind and be full of anxious thoughts and fearful about how things are going to work out. But more times than not, the things that you fear most, when you approach them, you think it's a great big obstacle. And actually, it's just a shadow that disappears and God removes it. I want to encourage you all, with all the kindness I can find in my heart, as we leave, as we come out of this lockdown phase of the last year, please do not fear. Nothing good comes from fear. Don't be anxious about how we're going to be able to interact with each other. It will be what it will be. God, it will work out. God will have his way, and we will cooperate with him as we do that. Don't be filled with fear. Nothing good comes from fear. The Bible says that everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. So let's not be full of, full, full of fear. Let's, let's not get into debates about how things are going to be and, and get all anxious about it. Can I just remind you of what Jesus said? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about your life. <laughs> what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, all about your body, what you're what you'll put on. Is your life not much more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? My friends, can we link arms and encourage each other? Let's not be anxious. Let's not be filled with fear about how things are going to work out. Let's live by faith. Let's let that empower us that as we walk by faith and trust God for our lives by faith, He will work out His plan for our lives. And I want to encourage you, as you approach the big stones in your life, often you will see that God simply rolls a stone away, and what you thought was a big obstacle is merely a shadow. It's not even there anymore. Amen? So let's be full, let's be full of faith as we move forward. But this is, uh, there was just a reflection. This is really what I want to say this morning. Um, verse 9 really is where Mark's gospel ends. Verse 9 to verse 20 were not part of the original manuscript of Mark. And we know that because the language changes quite substantially. And uh, we know scholars know that it was added afterwards. It's a summation. Someone else added this verse 9 to 20 as a summation of what Jesus said to his church. So that shouldn't disturb us too much because the early man manuscripts were copied by hand. And there is another portion of Scripture that was added later. If you read John chapter 8, the first verses of John chapter 8 were also added afterwards by someone as an addition, and, but they were, well, that section also wasn't part of the original text. So that shouldn't trouble us because over the centuries, the early church have uh, accepted this portion as a summation that was added, and we now have it as part of our, our Bible, but it wasn't part of the original Scripture. But one thing is certain— the resurrection was a, an historical event, and it actually happened. The angels appear and testify to this event. It was not some kind of hallucination. Uh, I want to say to you, you know, we think as modern, modern people, we're so clever that, you know, we know that, you know, you don't rise from the dead, that resurrection doesn't happen. Well, can I just respectfully say, the ancients didn't believe it either, right? Plato didn't believe it. Aristotle didn't believe it. Socrates didn't believe it. The scribes and the Pharisees fought about it all the time. One party saying they believed in resurrection. The other party saying they didn't believe in resurrection. This is not a new thing, you know, as, as, as modern people that we kind of think we're so clever. No, actually, ancient people didn't believe in resurrection either. Nobody expected what they found at the tomb. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead... We would not ever have heard of him. And the woman, we read in the scripture, they are not expecting the resurrection. It, it takes them completely by surprise. Their attitude was, we're going with our spices to anoint this body. This body is dead. They go there. They find an empty tomb. The attitude of the disciples is, everything has finished in tragedy. What Jesus said was going to happen has not happened. And they fled out of absolute fear. They were scattered all over the place. And so for me, one of the most compelling reasons that I believe the resurrection is the existence of the church. What else could have transformed sad, despairing, frightened men and women into radiant people of joy that didn't fear at all for their lives? It was the resurrection of Jesus. What else enables you to be stoned and thrown to the lions and to live joyfully and, 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 and go through that experience with your head held up, you've got to believe something very, very deeply is true for you to go through this. 
This is the most compelling reason for me that I do believe the resurrection happened. And it's the central fact of the whole Christian faith. Because we believe the resurrection, a whole lot of other things flow out of that foundation. And here are some things I want to remind you of this morning. Very simply, and I won't take long. First of all, the resurrection story prevents us from getting rid of the supernatural from the Christian faith. It get, it, it, we cannot get rid of the supernatural if we believe the Bible. Of course, there have been many people over the centuries, the course of history, that have tried to do precisely that. And there are many people that still do that. They try and retell the Christian story and remove the miraculous and the supernatural out of it. And just try and understand Jesus as a good guy, a good teacher. But they try and remove all of the supernatural and the miraculous out of it. But as long as we approach the Bible with any kind of seriousness, it's quite impossible to get rid of the supernatural. Jesus was raised from the dead. It happened. There were witnesses. The angels testified. And he appeared all over Galilee to many, many people. We say in our natural being, it is impossible. Of course it is, but with God, all things are impossible. And so as Jesus was, was resurrected from the dead, he ushered in a whole new way of life that for you and I that believe by faith, we too one day will be raised with a new body and we will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth with him. That's why it is so miraculous. He was the first of the new and he lived it out. And so my friend Michael Eaton puts it like this. He says, Christianity without the risen Jesus is a monstrosity. It is absolutely unthinkable. Paul says, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you and I as Christians are people most to be pitied. Why? Because if he wasn't raised from the dead, we are living a meaningless faith. But if he was raised from the dead, then that changes everything. And we live with that same resurrection power transforming us from the inside out. So that's the first thing I want to say to you. The resurrection story prevents us from removing the supernatural from the Christian faith. Secondly, the events of the resurrection are the foundation for everything that follows. Everything that follows. The, the resurrection is, is proof. It's an indication that death has been conquered. We sang this morning, death, where is your sting? Why can we sing that with conviction? Because of the resurrection. Because the, the resurrection is the first example that death has been defeated. That the fear of death that everyone has labored under for centuries has been removed because Jesus has conquered death. And so you and I never need to fear death any longer. We can stare it in the face with joy when I go to be with Christ one day and I meet my friends and family that have known him once again. It will be the most amazing time. I'm going to ask Michael Eaton. I'm going to ask Paul. I'm going to ask many people, all sorts of things. I'm going to see my, my parents. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because that makes all of these things possible. It is the foundation of everything. Genesis 3.19 says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The resurrection undoes Genesis 3.19. Turns it around. No longer applies. Why? Because you and I are going to have a resurrected body and we're going to meet him one day 
with a resurrected, glorified body. This is the Christian faith. Everything flows from the resurrection. It's the foundation of every Christian experience. And so all of us, that's why Paul uses the language, we are joined onto Christ with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You and I are in Christ, and we live with that same resurrection power in our lives. We live with a supernatural enabling. It's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us and lives in us and enables us to live differently. It enables us to be brave. It enables us to be full of faith. It enables to, us to love people that are difficult. Why? Because it's the same Spirit that Jesus knew that raised Him from the dead now dwells in you and I and transforms us from the inside out. And that changes absolutely everything. Our past, our present, our future. It changes everything. How you view your life, your money, your sex, money, power. It changes everything when that resurrection power inside of you is transforming you from day by day. From one glory to another, degree of glory to another. So my point is, my friends, Jesus is not just some story in a book. He's not such a, some figure in a book. You might, you might begin your journey with Jesus by reading the book, by reading the Bible. But it must end with you meeting him must end with you meeting him as a, a resurrected Christ, as a Lord, the Lord of all glory that has been raised from the dead. It has to end there. It doesn't end with you just reading a book. It's not about knowing lots of things about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection in your life. Thirdly, I love this. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole resurrection story. I think it is my favorite part of the whole resurrection story. It's one single little verse that you can skip over. Verse 7. The angel says, Go and tell the disciples, comma, and Peter. I love that. Why? Because in the heart of the resurrection story is an offer of forgiveness. The angel knows Peter is racked with guilt. He's full of remorse of what he's done. And so the angel says, go tell all the disciples and Peter. Just want Peter to know especially that he's forgiven. It is well. Jesus is more concerned for Peter. Not about what Peter did to him. But how much pain Peter's going through knowing what he's done. And Jesus is more concerned to say, I forgive you. Than he is to see punishment meted out. Isn't that so true? Everyone wants punishment meted out. If you don't agree with me, cancel culture. Punishment on you. Don't like what I say? I cancel you. Punishment. Our world is becoming increasingly ungracious, increasingly vicious. This is not our message. Our message is like, Peter, we who have messed up get forgiven. And God says to you, go and tell the disciples and Clive and Leslie and Ant. And Maria, you're forgiven. Man, this is powerful. This is the gospel. 
in the heart of the gospel is an offer of forgiveness that's available to all of us. And how often do we find that to be true? When we recognize our sin and we offer for, ask for forgiveness, Jesus is quick to show mercy and grace to all of us. He's much more interested in showing mercy than meeting our judgment. Lastly, and this is where we come to the last section. I said to you this was an addendum. This was a summation added by someone else. It wasn't Mark, but it seems to be a summation of what whoever this person is summarized some things about what the gospel does for us as his church. And uh, I'm going to read verse 9. It says this. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After all these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And then he went back and told the rest, but they did not believe. And afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And then he said this, Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever did not believe will be condemned. And, those, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak new tongues, they will pick up sermons with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover." So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken this to them, was taken up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So this is the commonly held um, portion that most of the church now accepts as, as the final part of Mark. And it starts with the summation of other people that have um, seen Jesus after his resurrection. In fact, there are three groups of, that are mentioned. First, one witness, Mary. Then two, it says working, these people were w walking on the road, possibly the road to Emmaus. That might have been the same people. And then it says, lastly, the third group of witnesses was the 11 uh, disciples, the apostles who had gathered together. And isn't it interesting? I wouldn't like to be rebuked by Jesus the first time after I'd seen him, uh, but they are. Basically, he says, you guys, didn't believe me. Why didn't you believe me? He kind of rebukes them, I hope in a nice way, just saying, you, you should have believed. Yeah, I am. Why didn't you believe me? And he rebukes them for their, their unbelief and not believing those that had seen him after the resurrection. And there are many other instances in the New Testament where other writers talk about how many people uh, were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection after he, he, he was raised from the dead. And this just thoroughly, thoroughly establishes the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then the second half of those verses, I'm finishing with this, um, are a picture left for us about the duty of the church, uh, what Jesus committed his church to do. And they're four very, very simple things. Verse 15 is the first little thing that all of us are called to. All of us are called to preach the good news. That's what it says. The, 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 the church has been given this mandate, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. It's the duty of the church, and therefore it's your, your duty, it's my duty as believers in Jesus, to tell the story of the good news of Christ 
and all that he's done for us and all, all that he's done for everyone whenever we get opportunity to do it. We are all heralds of the good news. And so I want to encourage you, whether you're at school, whether you're at university, whether you're a businessman or woman, whether you run your own business, whether you work for a business, whatever opportunity you have to live out and demonstrate the goodness of God through your life to other people, do it. It's our mandate as Christians to be preachers of the good news. Amen? Secondly, the church also has a healing task. Do you notice that? And verse 17, these signs will accompany those who believe. And so, there's a, as we've read this gospel of Mark, and as you read the other, the other uh, gospels, you see this over and over and over again, that Jesus is concerned not only with our souls, but he's concerned with our bodies. He's concerned with our minds. He's concerned with all of us, our whole, the whole person Jesus is con- concerned with. And so he wants health for our bodies as well as for our mind and for our souls. And so part of being a Christian is praying for the sick, praying for those that are under mental anguish, trusting God for healing by the power of the Spirit. This is part of a call for every single one of us, that we would pray regularly for the sick and expect them to recover. And so I want to encourage you as you journey forward in your own life, take every opportunity to pray. To lay your hands on people and trust that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is going to work through you by the power of the Spirit to see that person healed. This is, a, this is a call for every single one of us as believers, not for the special ones. You know, I don't have a ministry of healing. Well, you can still pray for the sick. Why? Because Jesus said all of us should pray for the sick. So let's do that. Let's preach the gospel. Let's pray for the sick. And thirdly, We live with a source of supernatural power. The church does that. Um, Verse 18 is quite interesting because it talks about um, uh, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And then it talks about us laying hands on the sick. Now, there are certain churches in America that um, have taken that quite literally, and there's these weird churches that have snakes in their meetings, and they allow them to bite them. And stuff you can it's like in the deep south in America somewhere uh, if you if you're interested you can have a look uh, I don't quite think that's what Jesus was meaning but um, when these words were written but there's this picture language here that there's the power by the Holy Spirit that we are able to cope in a supernatural way with life in a way that other people don't that's the, that's the promise the promise of the Holy Spirit is the supernatural source of power and that includes praying for the sick certainly But I want to encourage you with that. Every one of us has a source of supernatural power that God freely gives by faith. The scripture says, everyone who asks, God will pour out his spirit on all who ask as a good father, not withholding anything from us. If you need wisdom from heaven, if you need the power of the spirit, all you have to do is ask and Jesus will pour it out on you. Amen? That's the source of how we live, supernaturally, not naturally, but supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, verse 20, I love this. You know, Liverpool fans always sing, you'll never walk alone. Well, the church should be singing, you'll ne- you never left alone, because this is the great promise in verse 20. It says, and they went out and preached everywhere, 
while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Here's the beauty of what we do. Here's the beauty of these verses. We are never left alone to do the work. Jesus always works with us, and the Holy Spirit also always accompanies us as we live for the, for, for the King and as we work for Him. He's always with us. He's there. He's alongside. He's partnering with us all the time. And so... The Lord of the church is still Jesus, and Jesus is still the Lord of power. And so this amazing gospel finishes with this message that the Christian life is lived in the presence of Jesus, by the power of Jesus, because the crucified Jesus was raised from the dead. That's how we live. We live by power. We live in the presence of God because of the resurrection, which changes everything. So I trust this morning that you're encouraged I trust that you'll take some time this week to reflect on the power of the resurrection, what it means for your life, what God has done for you. And as you believe by faith and walk by faith, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead walks with you, is active in you, and enables you to live in a supernatural way, unlike everybody else. Enables you to live with faith, not fear. With forgiveness, not unforgiveness. Same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead enables you to do that. Amen.